Hi, this is Tom Parrish. With me today is Kevin Shaw, co-founder and instructor for the International Colorist Academy, and we're going to talk about his new course, Advanced Color Design, and delve into Kevin's particular approach to teaching color grading, which is less about the tools and more about how you perceive and think about color. Kevin, welcome to Color Talk. Hey, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us where you are, Kevin. London, I suppose. I'm in London, yeah. This week I'm working at my station at um, BBC Digital Media Services, part of the Post uh, Studios and Post-Production Group. Then I'm off to Amsterdam the next week. And uh, yeah, life is still a whirlwind. It's great. Well, you get around. You're one busy colorist. I'm delighted you're here. You know, I bet the audience doesn't know that Kevin was one of the first if not the first instructor for Da Vinci 888 and 2K. And that was back in the 1990s, so many of you might not even know about that. Frankly, I don't know that much either. But in 2004, Kevin decided he'd move back into the chair as a colorist. And these days, he teaches for the International Colorist Academy, and I took his colorist strategies and popular looks classes a few years ago in Los Angeles. I'm mentioning this because at that time I barely knew Resolve. However, Kevin, who was teaching this course, kept referring to and using the Nakota Film Master Grader during the demos. So I had some doubts about what I was going to learn, and I was pleasantly surprised. Over time, I realized that everything I do in Resolve 11 have been impacted by the very basic core philosophies that Kevin taught with regards to the perception and artistic use of color in films and music videos. I see now that Kevin's pragmatic way of teaching color grading works very well with any grading system you're using. So, Kevin, how did you come about this particular way of teaching? There, there are lots of reasons, like many things. Everything sort of comes to get, came together to, to make this happen. But the, the start of it, to be honest was when da Vinci first asked me to run some training classes. And so I said, well, it'd be kind of cool if you put me on a training class first. This was at the time that um, the product manager was currently doing all the training for them, Bruce Graham. And he used to run a class for the da Vinci Classic. So this was an analog color corrector, a real temperamental thing. But it only had, you know, as color correctors, we're talking sort of nearly 30 years back. So color correctors had um, very few controls. I mean, basically, it was lift gamma gain and a few tweaks. And its claim to fame was that it had 16 secondary vectors. And you, you could actually separate the vectors in a square box with no softness on the edges or anything. So you had to use the, the isolation to keep them separate. And Bruce taught a, a wonderfully fascinating class. He went through every control in that machine, told us how it worked, why it worked, how to use it, all the cool things that you could do with it. But his class, including the, the, the basic and the advanced class, his class for that box was around 10 days. And when, when they signed me up to run the training school and they said, you know, nobody can really get 10 days off work these days. Um, we need you to do the 888, which was their first digital hardware color corrector. Uh, we need you to cover that in about three days. And I'm going, well, you know, Bruce didn't even get through the, you know, the st startup menus in three days. And so I, I said, you know, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And I decided it was, you know, give a man a fish he eats for a day, teach a man to fish. And, um, and I just sort of kept that up. And it, 
it really came to the fore again when I left DaVinci. And then, as you say, I, I got back in the chair. I wanted to move into software. This was at a time when Resolve was not really um, well developed. It required a lot of hardware actually to make it run properly. Yeah. And um, I like the look of I like the look of Nucoder. I like the philosophy behind Nucoder, and uh, the guys were um, very helpful, like the DaVinci guys had been to me. And um, it occurred to me that I can't just translate what I know about DaVinci and start using another product. Interesting. And so again, I started thinking about. Okay, what am I trying to do here? Instead of me trying to um, find the tool that does that one thing, I really need to think a little bit deeper about what I'm trying to do and how I'm going to make this box do what I want to do. And I think that's really important. And in the hardware days, at the end of the hardware days, I trained a lot of people that thought they were really good, but actually what they were really good at was they knew the box really well. So they were really good operators and they didn't have to think too much about what is more important today. So, you know, the, well, I've got to really make it look good, or I've really got to, um, you know, impress this director, or I've really got to sell this concept, or all these things. They were just really operators, and they did what they were told. And that's why I think a lot of those hardware colorists never made it to software, actually. They were dragged kicking and screaming. So, yeah, so there, there are lots of things that kind of brought me to this sort of um, holistic approach of, what am I trying to do? I want to control the box, not the box control me. And you still see it today because, you know, like as always, all colorists are self-taught fundamentally. And all we can do with training is give you some pointers and some structure to your learning process. So with regards to pointers and structure to one's learning process, I'm reminded of all the notes that I took. I took a ton of them. I even rewrote them when I got back from your classes. And the two most important pieces of advice you gave me still sit on my desk when I first start each project. That's to reach and use the tool with the largest and most uniform effect when first getting started on a grade and use the tool with the least aggressive effect. And, you know, some people may find these ideas are pretty obvious and simple, yet I've found your advice invaluable, really, and widely applicable to any color grading tool I'm using. In fact, I've done a little teaching, and I see that people seem to relax some when they they hear that. It's like they've sort of simplified it a little bit for them. How'd you come up with those pearls of wisdom? Sure. Well, I'm, and I'm glad that it's um, worked out for you. It is, as you say, one of those very simple things so that um, when you say it, everybody, it's easy to think that it's obvious. So much of color correction is, yeah, that's really obvious when somebody says it, but how many people actually think it? So you might be doing this subconsciously, or you may just find that you work this way anyway. I, I would hope that that's how it comes out. But when you vocalize it, and of course, this is the this is why I got into training in the first place. You know, you learn so much, as you, you've already found yourself, Tom. Um, you learn so much from trying to explain yourself to somebody. And you think, you know, oh, that's true. Why do I do it that way? You know, is there a better way? Well, I, you know, because a lot of times the real answer is because I've always done it that way. <laughs> and, and you know, when you've been doing it as, as long as I have, you, you, you have to be very careful that, well, I used to do that 20 odd years ago because I didn't have any of these new tools. You know, and, and if you don't progress, if you don't start really milking all the new features that come out, it's very easy to get left behind, especially to nowadays um, when there's so many people out there competing with you. So really um, just being able to vocalize it, I think, is an aid in itself. But how did I come to that, um, to that idea? Well, 
It was because I noticed two colorists can match each other fairly well. Well, it's not as easy as it, as it used to be because of the, the, the possibilities are so complex. But, but you can usually match grade something pretty well. But what I noticed was that some people were able to make a, a look that might be, you know, a perfect match to somebody else's grade. And yet one of them would look cleaner and somehow more beautiful than the other. There was something intangible there. The pictures matched, but the quality was not the same. And uh, so I went on a long search for how can I get my pictures to shine out. And in the classes, I, I, I often say to people, you know, there's, there's a lot of competition out there nowadays. And what, what these classes are supposed to do is they're supposed to give you that extra 5 or 10% above everybody else that your pictures really stand out. And it's not just about coming up with new ideas. It's all about quality. And so that's where this came from. It was, you know, how can I make sure that my pictures are the best that they can be? Let's talk a little bit more about technique here. One concept you taught that I found invaluable is this idea of utilizing how your eyes can see simultaneous color. Your point is that the technique is helpful for new colorists, advanced colorists, and the same concept is super helpful in managing a session with a client with tired eyes. I like that. I think the basic idea is to quickly pop over to a black and white version of the image you're grading to help your eyes see the color they're missing. Tell us how you came to using this idea to your advantage and why it works. Yeah, it's um, again, it's really fun on, on so many levels. Well, Again, there's a historical perspective on it because when I when I started out grading, it was the norm in London. Um, it was on a sort of an ex-BBC policy, although I didn't know it then. Um, you'd have two monitors in front of the colorist, and one of them would be a black and white phosphor, and one of them would be a color phosphor. And the black and white phosphor was there as a reference, so that you could always see neutral. And then somebody figured out that, um, well, hang on a minute, the, the color of a black and white phosphor is not the same as a color phosphor with the color turned off. Ah. So then uh, we started asking our bosses for two color monitors, one of which always had the saturation turned down so that we had this reference idea. And the idea was that you would, your vision would never drift because you were always being balanced by the, by the black and white monitor. I believe... Before this, even um, the BBC had an idea of a D65, you know, strip lamp with different gradations of grayscale on it. Pretty soon, the cost of monitors meant that um, places were trying to cut the cost of two expensive monitors on the desk, and it went away. Um, plus, there was always the problem that even then, um, matching two phosphors, even the same type of phosphors, was was quite difficult. So we, we, you know, the rule after that was never have two monitors in the suite. And of course, we're back to having two monitors nowadays very often. But of course, if you can put color image and the black and white image on the same screen, then, you know, even if the monitor is off, you've still got a way of neutralizing your eyes because you know that yeah. that should be black and white. It's much, much like looking at a, a scope, a luminance-only scope. So, so that was the history behind it. And I, you know, so, so I kind of learned to grade that way as a, a way of balancing the blacks and balancing the whites, put up a black and white reference of the same picture, because then you've got the, the value, the, the, the kind of the, the black and white content that's equal. You know, if your sky is nearly white, you've got the same value there, but you just need to balance the colors out to get a neutral. And it gives you a very clean black, white, mid-gray, whatever you want. So that was in the hardware days. And then 
um, later on when I came back to greeting and I was, I was, when I went back to greeting in, in sort of 2004, I, w- I wanted to work on software and I wanted to work on feature films. Feature films, you know, had never really been a big thing in the hardware days because you just didn't have the resolution. And I was really excited about working on, on feature films. And um, so, of course, the, the problem with feature films, you know, and, and in those days we were grading for film print. So using lookup tables, calibration lookup tables and things. And it's really hard to know what black and white looks like with a color lookup table on there because, of course, it changes the color temperature and everything, you know. So I started doing this trick of, you know, putting a black and white image into the still store and and, um, using that as my reference. And uh, (laughs) I started to notice something really interesting, which I brought to the classes, which was when you do that, let's suppose you've been grading... um, you know, a, a sepia sequence for okay. six, seven, eight hours a day. You know, we've all been there. As the yeah. day goes on, your eyes become more and more used to the color. And if you're not careful, you start pushing more and more of this color in there just to get the same look to your eyes. So, you know, one of Kevin's rules is um, there can be only one reference. So this is the Lord of the Rings rule. There can be only one reference. And so that's one way of dealing with it. The problem is that that doesn't really sell to the client. So I'm very interested not just in getting the best pictures, but how do you persuade your client that these really are the best pictures? You know, and so what happens is I'm I've got my scopes, I've got my reference image, I know where where I am, you know, in terms of brain compensation and all the rest of it. But how do I manage my client? I don't really want to turn around and confront my client and say, "Look, what you think you're seeing is not really what you're seeing." Yeah. So what's really cool is that. When you put up that black and white image, um, you're not just resetting your own eyes, but you are, without saying a word, you're resetting your client's judgment. And if the client pipes up, you know, why, why did you put that blue image up there? You can actually sort of explain this whole rule of simultaneous color and, and explain that, you know, your color vision has drifted. This is the way that we recalibrate our eyes. We recalibrate ourselves. Well, so what happens is if you're looking at the sepia image, then the eye basically starts trying to say, or the brain, I should say, starts trying to compensate for the sepia by removing sepia, so adding blue cyan. And when you put that black and white image up, it can't help but add that blue cyan to the black and white image, Yeah. right? Because it hasn't adjusted back yet. And so the color that you see in the black and white is exactly the color that you need to add to your image to get a neutral, to get a balance. In the case of the sepia, you're using it simply to recalibrate your eyes. So you look at it and say, well, I know that's black and white. But if you are trying to you know, balance a white or balance a shadow, you put the black and white image up and two things can happen. One is you put the black and white image up and what should happen is you say, oh, well, the shadows are really red. I need to take some red out. But very often what happens is you put the black and white up and the picture you've been looking at still looks neutral. You know, you, you're kind of looking at it and you think there's something wrong, but you're not quite sure what it is. When you put the black and white up, by comparison, because of simultaneous color, the black and white image now looks cyan. Yeah. And the cyan that you see in the black and white is what you need to add to your image, your, the image that you're grading, in order to get a neutral shadow. All right, Kevin, as a segue to talking more about the courses you teach at the International Colorist Academy, let's move into your ideas around reverse engineering looks. This is one of your central concepts, and that's how you use the idea of being inspired by a look and then reverse engineering it to creatively adjust that look into something unique. 
Okay. Well, so as of January next year, I'll be running three classes, three two-day classes instead of the, the three-day and the two-day. So the, the popular looks class becomes look generation. It's basically the same class, but restructured for the, the six-day course. And um, the idea of popular looks, look generation, is to be inspired by anything. It could be a painting, it could be a photograph, it could be a feature film, it could be a TV series, to be inspired by it and um, come up with something new. Because you know, somebody walks in through the door and they say, oh, I think this should look like the Matrix. Well, do they really mean that? You know, do they really want people to go to, as to watch their film and say, oh, this looks like the Matrix? You know, because at that point, you've lost them. You know, they're not involved in your story anymore. They're, just, they're too busy thinking about the Matrix. And the point I make at the beginning of the, um, of the looks class is you need to use this to your advantage. Um, so somebody who comes in, for example, and says, and I say, well, you know, what do you think? How, how do you want this to look? And they say, oh, Make it look like, give it that sort of Technicolor look. Well, my gut reaction is like, there's a gazillion movies. There must be thousands of movies that are made on Technicolor, you know? Yeah. Uh, which which particular one did you want? <laughs> um, but of course, I don't say that. Um, I, I just think to myself, well, that's great. I can do pretty much anything I want. I just need to think of a Technicolor film that matches my idea, you know? Um, so I use it as a way of giving me free run. Um, so that's the beginning of the class. But the looks class is really about, as you say, this idea of reverse engineering. So somebody comes in and they say, can you make it look like this? And what I found was a lot of people were, would come to me. In fact, I just had one uh, just yesterday, a, a guy straight off the, off the Internet, you know, said, I saw your site. You, you know, you seem to know a bit about color correction. I'm not a colorist. I'm doing a bit of a movie. I think it's some sort of a home movie or a student project. I don't know. He said, I've seen this picture before and after. I've seen this picture. I like the way it looks. Can you tell me how I would do that? So very often people ask this, you know, how do I get that look? And, you know, often the answer is, well, you, you spend six months in CG. You know, it's not color corrected at all. You know, when somebody <laughs> says make it look like 300 or something, well, that's not color correction at all. But, of course, I can give you the style of 300 without doing it exactly the way that they did it. And that, that's the trick here. That's what reverse engineering the look is. It's about saying, okay, let me take the, the idea behind this, um, this look and recreate it. And it is really reverse engineering it because very often a simple technique to, to figure out how to make a look is to take the look. Of course, you don't have the uncorrected image most of the time. People just come through the door with, can you make it look like this? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So one of the techniques that we explore in, in quite some detail is, okay, if you take the, the look image and you try to balance it back to neutral, everything that you did to make that look look normal, if you do it in reverse, then you will create the look on a normal picture. So again, it's a very simple concept. It's probably the way most people may subconsciously get to that anyway. But again, just vocalizing it can save you an awful lot of time. And the, and the sheer panic that I see on some people's face when they go, oh, where do I start? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. How about we move on into how people can find out more about your courses and how they can get signed up? Sure. Um, well, I've just, um, it's, yeah, so there's three two-day classes now. There's, um, okay. like I say, um, premium colorist strategies, which just identifies it as a two-day class rather than a three-day class. 
Yeah. Um, look generation, which is ostensibly popular looks. You know, if you've already done popular looks, you don't need to do look generation. Yeah. And then the, the third class, the, the remaining two days, uh, is this idea of advanced color design. And advanced color design is, you know, I know what the look is. So I've, I've figured out what it looks like. But it's much more now about elements within the picture. And it's it's all about color harmony, basically. Um, so we talk about the different rules of color harmony. And I have to tell you, when I started researching this this class, and, it, and the class came about because so many people said, look, I really enjoyed the first two classes. When are you going to do something else? And for a long time, I was thinking, well, I'm not really sure that I have any rules for after that. You know, after that, it's kind of freestyle. Um, Go figure it out. Yeah, that's it. You're on your own after here. But yeah. then um, I got involved in this idea of color harmonies. And at one point I thought, well, there's no class here because there are so many rules of color harmony that whatever you do, there's a rule that covers it. You know, so, so it doesn't really help very much. <laughs> but I ran this the first time end of October and it was even more fun than I had hoped for because what happened was that these rules really did help us to, you know, to choose a skin tone or to um, create color variation in foliage or to, um, you know, what color should the sky be? That's one of the things that I'm, I kind of um, go off on a tangent on is, you know, we have so few words for colors. And you say to somebody, what color is the sky? And they say blue. And, you know, blue covers probably one third of the visual spectrum. You know, it's right. huge. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so which particular blue do you want? You know, we're back to the technical thing. Um, yeah. And advanced color um, design is really about that. It's, well, there will be a very narrow palette of blues that really works with your look. And, and if, you know, if you know how to find that and you go straight to it, I can just save you so much time. Kevin, will you be running these courses in the United States in 2015, in particular the advanced course? I hope to. So um, the last year or so, I've been very tied up on a on this big um, project with um, BBC Digital Media Services doing well I've you know built a new facility with them and then we've been heavily into restoration so I've been a bit tied up but um, so January uh, let me see the dates in January I think it's 25th to the 31st of January is London and then probably around uh, what I'm thinking is around NAB time I'll probably come over to the states and at least run the class in Los Angeles, maybe Los Angeles, New York, um, okay. around April, May time. Yeah. And then I'll probably run it. Um, now I'm sort of getting back to doing the classes again. I should be running three to four in Europe and probably, probably a couple in the States. That would be the plan. All right. This has really been a delight, Kevin, having an opportunity to speak with one of my teachers. Also, more importantly, just an ongoing discussion with a senior colorist. That really means a lot to me, and I hope it has been useful to the audience here. Have a wonderful, successful year for 2015. I'm sure I will, and um, it's great to see what you're doing on your site. I, I love all that, uh, all the Munsell.com and the interviews you've been doing. That's really a really refreshing approach, and, uh, and good luck with that, too.